What I'm going to do tonight stems from a conversation I had on a Sunday morning, probably six weeks ago, with a, uh, a woman that came up to me. She's doing, one of our sisters here is doing the all-in readings, and she was asking a question. It resonated with me because it's one that I've asked, and it's one that I think, if, you, if you've been doing the all-in readings, you've probably asked some version of this question. It's kind of uh, a question that comes from so many of these violent, ugly stories in the New Testament. You see humans doing terrible things to each other. You see God asking people to do some things that seem like things that God shouldn't be asking people to do as well. So there's just a lot of that going on in these Old Testament stories. And so her question was, is the God of the Old Testament the same God as the God of the New Testament? Uh, because the New Testament looks very, very different. I think it's a good question. I think it's something that, that takes us deeper into the story, our story. Um, maybe more than the question, you have been wrestling with some of these portions and struggling to make sense of the morality or, you know, not just the God question, God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, but just the morality or lack of morality in some of these stories. And what I wanted to do tonight was just pick out what I think maybe one of the most difficult stories of the Old Testament, um, one of the most uh, ugly stories of the New Testament, uh, one about the annihilation of a people, the Amalekites, and think about how that might fit into the larger story of God's redemptive plan. Now, let me start out by saying I'm not the Bible answer man. Uh, this sermon tonight is probably unlikely to completely say, oh, now that totally makes sense. I, I'm, I, I understand totally how that happened. It's not to do that. I don't claim to have the answers on this story or others like this story that trouble us deeply. Uh, and I hope you're okay with that. Uh, we're going to do our best. I think we need to be okay with that. Because the God of the Bible isn't an answer man. I mean, we would like for him to be. We'd like for us to take any and every difficult question we have and be given book, chapter, verse. There it is. There's the answer. Uh, God is just providing us answers to all of the questions that we ask, but he doesn't do that. Um, in fact, uh, I think we need to, to wrap our, our minds around that, uh, that God is not obligated to provide answers to all the questions we seek. He is God. We are not. Um, the God we serve and the one we come to know in the Bible is generally the one asking the questions. I mean, think of a, a horrible, unjust situation of suffering like Job. Job in the middle of that situation starts asking a lot of questions. Natural. God, why are you doing this? What's going on? At the end of the story, God just patiently listens to all of those questions, and then God begins asking the questions, asking questions that Job could never hope to answer. Only God would know the answers to that. The point being, God is saying, look, Job, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. <laughs> I, I know more than you do, and you wouldn't understand the answers if I gave them to you to start with because I know all that there is to know. Um, in the Gospels, people come to Jesus with all kinds of questions, right? Uh, and some of these questions are designed to test Jesus. Some of these questions are designed to trick him or trap him. And usually instead of in fact, I can't really think of a case where, where Jesus does give them the answer they're looking for. Uh, usually, almost always, Jesus turns it around, and Jesus begins asking the questions. Um, Matthew 10, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus reply, hmm, 
Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. And that's kind of the way Jesus answers a lot of questions. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Well, whose image is on this coin? Tell me that. Okay, it's his. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So God's not an answer man. That's not his primary job. doesn't owe us answers. But beyond, I think, the hubris, the arrogance that we would even have to have to think we could understand the answers that an eternal God with a perspective way beyond ours might answer, even if he chose to tell us what was going on, we come to this realization that he has a knowledge, not just knowledge, he has all knowledge. (laughs) He created all things. There is no law that is at work in mathematics or science. There is no physical property on a planet or star in this galaxy or any other that he does not know about. He is not governed by laws of time and space. He's eternal. And I'm not trying to take the easy out on this, the way easy way out uh, in answering the most difficult passage perhaps in the Old Testament. Just put it in perspective. And the next thing I think we should say before we get into this is just the realization that all of the stories, all of the narratives in Scripture are part of the big story. What is the the large story of Scripture? And how does this smaller story fit into that? That's the best question to ask, the most probably helpful question to ask. And whether that ends up satisfying our need to know or our restless minds It's important to ask that because in the end, the good news only makes sense. The love and grace and forgiveness we experience through Jesus Christ and what He did for us on the cross, that only makes sense when we get a grip on just how much trouble we're in. Just how serious is our sin situation. And if we have some notion, I don't know that we can have a full notion, but some notion of just how bad our situation is without Jesus, the good news is only good news when we feel the weight of the bad news, the depth of our sin and our depravity. And then, I believe, and only then will we fall on our knees in gratitude, in worship to the King of Kings who gave up His life on Calvary for us so that our sins could be forgiven and so that we and all people might have fellowship restored with the one who made us. So here's the story. Here we go. 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Samuel said to Saul, so let's just stop here. Um, Think about the historical context here. The nation of Israel is brand spanking new. We have had the 12 tribes of Abraham wandering around, rescued from Egypt, and now coming into the promised land. Um, They've gone through the judges, but now they have a king. Now they have a national identity, the nation of Israel, and now they are very much surrounded by threats, those who have occupied those lands since the time of 
Abraham's departure centuries before. Samuel said to Saul, King Saul, I'm the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over this people Israel, so listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Just attacks, 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 uh, militia-style hit-and-run things as this nomadic people is marching through, picking on the, the weaker and slower Israelites who are back at the back of the, of the procession. Now go, attack the Amalekites, totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Everything that's breathing needs to be destroyed. That's pretty troubling. That's pretty troubling. Um, I believe the normal and the natural reaction for believers or unbelievers coming to a passage like this is to feel very uncomfortable, perhaps even just shocked, right? I mean, doesn't this, doesn't this cross a moral line? I mean, this is not simply... It appears to be not simply an endorsement for mass murder. This appears to be a divine command to commit mass murder. And we have a story where God isn't simply permitting evil to occur. It isn't just allowing suffering. It appears that God is actually the cause of it. Um, God is giving a command for the Amalekites to be destroyed. He, he's using His people, Israel, to be the instrument of that destruction. In Hebrews, of course, Scripture tells us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God is the same. But isn't this a case where God is asking people to do something evil, to cause pain and suffering? Some have even said, a lot of people have said, especially the, the new atheists who are picking on Christian faith these days, this is genocide. This is God-sanctioned genocide. Now, you've got to step back from that claim pretty quickly. Not genocide. The Amalekites were not singled out because of their ethnicity. They were being singled out for crimes they had committed, for murders they had committed, for stealing they had committed, for attacks against innocents that they had committed. The text tells us that right there. Um, so not targeted for their ethnicity. I'm not saying that makes you comfortable with the story, but this is not an ethnic cleansing. In fact, the Amalekites are a Semitic people, just like the Jewish people. And the Lord had told the Israelites clearly in Scripture before this point, they were not superior to other peoples. They were not morally superior to other people, God tells them. They were not somehow ethnically superior to other people. They were not superior in terms of their virtues or their skills and talents to other Canaanite peoples, not based on their goodness. This is from Deuteronomy 7. Not based on their goodness that God chose them. God just chose them. All throughout the Old Testament, Israel is warned about Israel's wickedness. Israel is warned that they will face the exact same judgment that the other nations face if they refuse to repent and turn things around. So God is not singling out a nation because of 
It's the color of its skin or the language that they speak or something like that. So let's pull back to see the bigger story before we pull in and get a close-up on this particular story and specifically the Amalekite people and the judgment that God poured out over them. So, the big story in the Bible is Jesus. That's the big story. Everything before him, the law and the prophets, the patriarchs, all that came before Jesus in the Old Testament in some way points to Jesus. Some of it very clearly, some of it you have to think about, some of it you have to look at in context, but in the end it's all pointing forward to Jesus. Everything after Jesus, the, letter Paul, the letters that Paul writes and Peter writes, um, they're pointing back to Jesus. Jesus is the reference point for Paul and everything that's written after Jesus. The book of Revelation is that unusual book that points to an exalted Jesus in heaven and points to eternity with Jesus. So, Jesus is the reference point in the big story. He is, as we are told in the Bible, the Alpha and the Omega. He is the story, the beginning and the end of story. He is the author and perfecter of our faith, the book of Hebrews again. So when God appeared to Abraham and began making promises to this um, figure Abraham, who would become this wandering uh, man and this leader and father of the tribes, um, he tells Abraham, here's who I am. I'm going to build a great nation through you, Abraham. Childless man. Um, you and your wife, Sarah, are going to be the parents of this great nation that you can't even count more numerous than the stars in the sky, okay? Um, why? He tells him in the very beginning. Why I'm doing this, why I am blessing you is so that, remember this, so that all nations might be blessed through you. Pretty inclusive. That's from Genesis chapter 12. All nations blessed through you. Nations in Africa blessed through you, Abraham. Of course, he didn't even you know, know the, that the world was round at that point probably, right, Abraham? Nations in Asia, nations in the Americas, all nations, all of them blessed by you. Um, in the Old Testament, so God is, in the Old Testament, that matters because now we get a reference point. In the Old Testament, God is honoring this promise because God wants to bless all nations. So he is going to fight for Israel. He is going to preserve Israel. He's going to protect Israel because one day it's through Israel that a Savior will be born and that all nations might find salvation through this Savior. Who we come to find, we know more of the story, right? As, as believers, this Savior is going to be the Son of God, the incarnation of God. In the case of the Amalekites, so zooming in a little bit here, God asked Saul to wipe them out. And we're told in the text why. Um, a, they were a wicked people. And they had committed sins that were being judged, or the word there that we read earlier is punished. Okay? B, uh, the Amalekites posed an existential threat to Israel since... They had been attacking, 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 attacking. They had known nothing but trying to destroy Israel. That was what they were about. 
to protect and preserve this part of the story, Israel, from whom the Savior of humanity would come one day, um, with all of that in the background, the Amalekites had to be dealt with. In terms of national or tribal identities, the Amalekites and other Canaanite groups, and this is where things get tricky for us. We're talking about perspective. We just can't get this part, okay? The Amalekites and other Canaanite groups of that time were far more wicked and depraved than anything we might expect to see in the world today. Um, maybe Boko Haram or ISIL, ISIS, whatever you want to call that group, you know, maybe that's the closest thing, um, some sort of culture or national type of identity. I mean, they're trying to establish this caliphate or whatever, um, where in the name of, of barbaric and twisted religious convictions, wherever they go, women are raped, um, innocent people are tortured or maimed, uh, people are killed, and then their bodies are, are maimed and, and, and mutilated. Uh, wherever they go, justice is thwarted. And uh, wherever ISIL goes or Boko Haram, um, it all gets filmed and produced and celebrated by those who follow that. So that's pretty bad. But doesn't come close to the Amalekites doesn't hold a candle to the Canaanite peoples in terms of, of evil. We simply don't have a modern reference point, okay? Um, the Amalekites and others worship their gods through ritual prostitution, through incest, through child abuse, and child sacrifice. So think about that. Just kind of let that one soak in. I'm sorry, that's, those are, we're going to have some graphic images because you can't talk about the Amalekites without talking about that, but just... Think that was their, so that was their worship, all right? Um, the highest ideals of a culture, right, embodied in their worship, what they worship, what they aspire to be, the essence of what a culture holds to be noble and true, the highest good, again, the religion, the religion of the people, the worship of the people. So it was centered around for the Canaanite people's human degradation, torture, execution of infants, and sexual degradation. That is their moral compass. Now, we're not talking about everything else they did. Um, we're talking about just the moral center of their culture, the religion of their culture. So I don't think we can come close to imagining what it must have been like to live in the Amalekite world, to grow up in the Amalekite world, uh, much less to watch children growing up in this macabre, barbaric, purely evil way of doing life and seeing the world. So God is going to use here Israel as an instrument of divine judgment, a judicial instrument, an instrument of the court of God to bring righteous judgment, righteous punishment against a culture. Also, God needs to protect Israel from the threat that these people pose, existential threat um, from this neighboring people who would wipe them out if given half a chance. 
the threat also, which we won't spend a lot of time on, but the other threat would be of the contamination of the culture of Israel by these surrounding peoples, which is very much on God's mind as well, and we, which we very much see as the centuries unfold. Um, this contamination did happen. We know that. And it happened at the highest levels of Israel, Israelite society. In our all-in readings, we've already read about King Manasseh, who Israelite king, King Manasseh, who, according to Second Chronicles 33.6, was sacrificing children, was practicing witchcraft, and doing, quote, much evil in the eyes of the Lord. One of the regional gods that Israel would at times end up worshiping and end up offering sacrifices to was Chemosh. In fact, the Israelites had built a, uh, an altar to Chemosh just outside of Jerusalem in the valley of Himnon, and it would have been a god familiar to the Amalekites, probably worshipped by them as well. Now, here's how the worship of Chemosh went down. This is bad. There was a large bronze statue of the god, and there was one located in the Valley of Himnon just 100 yards or so outside the city gates of Jerusalem. Um, the statue had a giant, so huge mammoth bronze statue, giant bronze arms and hands outstretched from the body of the statue. Under the two hands, this is how the worship happened. Under the two hands, down below, a, a inferno would be, um, would be fabricated, would be manufactured. Just a huge, raging bonfire, okay? And it would make those arms and those hands glow white hot. Then it was time for the worship service. Infants would be placed in those hands, okay? And the infants would then fall down into the inferno after the skin melted off. That was their worship. That was their, that was their moral center. And it did infect Israel and Judah, as we see in the Scripture. So the Amalekites, God asks for them to be wiped out entirely because they were evil. And because they had attacked Israel, and because they would continue to attack Israel, and because they would continue to influence Israel. Antiquity scholar and archaeologist William Albright called their religion, quote, perhaps the most depraved religion known to man. Now, the blessing of Jesus, the Messiah, would be given centuries later and would offer the gift of salvation to all people of all tribes, even wicked people, if they would repent and turn to the Lord. Now, another thing, and this is very important when we get to the story, again, context, and getting a bigger picture of what's going on. As we consider this difficult part of this big story, this order to wipe out the Amalekites, we need to consider that the Lord, it's not like He loses His temper here in 1 Samuel. 
Um, this is not some sort of he's had enough knee-jerk reaction sort of thing. In fact, he has given a warning to the Amalekites. He has given a warning about the Amalekites about 400 years earlier, all right? Um, way back in Genesis 15, Abraham is told, generations will pass, will come and go, and your descendants will come back and bring judgment when my wrath is full. I'm patient with them. I'm giving them time. But time is going to run out. Remember, God knows everything. Now, a lot of the thinking that the God of the Old Testament is different somehow from the God of the New Testament comes from a flawed idea that in the Old Testament, God has this hair-trigger temper. Um, he is constantly in the Old Testament. He's, look at him. He's just flying off the handle without provocation. And the reality is, like in a story like this one, this looks like one of the most difficult stories of the Old Testament. The reality is, 400 years of patience is hardly flying off, you know, flying off the handle here. Um, Genesis 15, 16, the Lord says that their sin... Uh, would one day reach its, quote, full measure, and then he could not delay judgment any longer. So it's interesting, I think, how we ask questions of God these days. We even, um, and this is really kind of funny if you think about it too much, but we even kind of judge God these days. Um, and then we get upset when God doesn't judge right? We're not happy with God when He doesn't judge. How, how can God let that evil happen? How can God allow those people to do what they're doing? Why doesn't God bring justice? And so either He is too patient for us and too merciful, or He's not, he's not bringing justice quickly enough. God, as we've said before, God just can't make us happy, nor is it His job to make us happy. Uh, but when he does deal with the mind-staggering, heart-wrenching wickedness in the Old Testament, we're revolted and shocked uh, by his sovereign choice to finally and completely deal with this pocket of evil. Now, I know what you're thinking. Wait a second. There are infants and children in that story as well. Um, I mean, God explicitly told Saul through Samuel, kill them all, including the little children. How could he do that, and how could that possibly be part of a good God's plan? Now, that's troubling. And to deny that that's troubling would be insincere and foolish. I think we need to be honest with God's Word, and we need to say, yeah, that's troubling. Um, now, there are some things we should consider. First off, back to the big picture, we need to consider that God sees everything. Everything that's happened is happening, will happen. He knows everything. He's God. We're not. God has the capacity to see how one domino falling will cause other dominoes to fall in historical sequence that might trigger more and more consequences in the future. He can see how one decision today could cause a lot of good down the road. And we could use a lot of, I mean, we could stop here and pause and tell stories about how you parent your children 
how you might allow them to experience pain today, knowing that it's going to bring a lot of good fruit later. Um, but kids don't understand that, right? You, know, well, you wouldn't expect, as a parent, your two-year-old to understand that. And I think it's important for us to consider we, we are that two-year-old, right? We, we're not going to get that. Um, and in his wisdom and knowledge, God can see how something that might look cruel to us in, a mom- in this moment, how it might bring redemption and life later on down the road. And is it possible, and I'm not even asking you to say that you agree with this, but is it possible that ending the lives of infants born in this particular culture, is it possible that that was a merciful thing to do in light of what we know that depraved and wicked culture would do to them, was doing to them, already had done to them, to get those children out of that culture of death and bring them into His glorious light, a place of life, a paradise. How can I, I guess this is what I'm asking, to, I'm asking, how could I definitively say that was wrong for God to do or for God to order? I'm going to preach a sermon tomorrow, uh, or I'm going to preach a sermon, I'm going to preach a funeral tomorrow for a two-month-old baby out in Weatherford. That's going to be hard. I mean, there's a kind of grief and mourning that goes on when a young one passes away. But one thing I'll tell them and I'll remind them is this. We know, I mean, I may preach some funerals where I'm not totally sure about the eternal destination of the person who I'm eulogizing or or I'm preaching the funeral about, but I know with a child, they're with God, right? I mean, Jesus makes that very clear. The purity, the innocence. Don't hinder the children. I invite the children to come to me for the kingdom of heaven is for such as these. We know that children who pass away wake up in the presence of God. And that a child who wakes up in heaven is far happier than the happiest human being on this planet right now. So, just asking, how can we definitively say that was the, the wrong thing for God to command in light of what we do believe about the resurrection and the hope we have in Christ? Here's what more I think we can say definitively from the perspective of those who believe in God and His promises. Um, and this is what we've already alluded to. Infants and children being killed in a military battle is not the end of the world because we have that conviction, right? That they began their life in their forever home with God. They are innocent. Amalekite children are innocent, and all children are innocent. And when infants and children die, they go to be with Christ for eternity. One note here, and I think this is, I don't know how important this is, but I think it's a good one to to note As you study the history of God's people, of the tribes, while the nations around them were committing all sorts of atrocities, torture, 
maiming of corpses, degradation in those that they had conquered. That was routine. Um, Israel would, would generally act differently. Um, they would conquer and they would kill, uh, but they were not given justification to torture. That was different. Um, the destruction of the Amalekites and the Canaanite peoples was categorically not genocide. I mean, by definition, it, 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 it wasn't genocide. Um, in the narrative, the campaign against the Amalekites is not hate-driven. Um, it's not motivated by issues of race or ethnicity. The campaign against the Amalekites is not a carte blanche thing. It is limited by time and space, specific occasion, and it is about specific crimes that were committed, specific guilt. It's been delayed, we know in the big story, for hundreds of years because of God's patience. Warnings were given to the Amalekites. Warnings were given to other people. I mean, you remember when Joshua and the Israelites are going to take over Jericho. People in Jericho know about Israel. They know about the God of Israel. We see the free choice exercised by Rahab, and we know that others could have exercised in that military garrison town that same decision to change sides. So I want to be very clear. I don't think we have to understand the why of the story. Oftentimes I don't think that's even fair to expect that we would understand the why of the story. Um, you can even say, hey, I'm an atheist and I just think this story is morally wrong. You can say that, but to call it genocide or ethnic cleansing, that's not, not at all what it was. Now our story, the redemption story of God, is the big story. It's what the Lord has been up to since the garden, since Adam and Eve and the fall of man. We celebrate the birth and the life of Jesus. We celebrate that as the entrance of the Redeemer, uh, the opening act of this unveiling of God's redemption here on earth in the New Testament. But to get to that point, Jesus, Bethlehem, the birth, um, our holy God chose to work with a highly fallible and fragile people, Israel. Um, and they would be the chosen people who he selected, not based on their merit. He selected by his love, through whom Jesus would one day come and save all people. All people who call on his name. God guides Israel, you remember. Pillar of fire at night, pillar of cloud in the day. He leads them as a shepherd leads his sheep. He reveals his word to them on Mount Sinai and through the prophets, so that they would get to know Him more fully, they would love Him more fully, and they would understand His will more fully, so that they would be a light to the nations. Through Israel, the world got a glimpse of what it looks like to be in relationship with this God of chesed, this God of loving kindness, who forgives and restores, to be in a relationship with the God of the universe, what it looks like to be cared for, what it looks like to be protected by, to be fathered by, and to be redeemed by this loving God. And yeah, 
part of that larger story are these smaller stories, the battles that are part of this large story. And Israel was confronted with primitive, barbaric peoples, and God led His people Israel into battle. He led them to conquer the promised land where these promises of redemption would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And through what He did in His life, and through that narrative of His sacrifice on the cross and His glorious resurrection. So the God of the Old Testament, and it's the same God. It's the God of the, that we find in the New Testament, the one who is good, the one who is merciful, the one in whom, in whom all people can find forgiveness and hope. They turn to Him. The one who revealed most fully not through the law and the prophets, but most fully through Himself, through Jesus Christ, is the God who fights evil and injustice and defends His holy people. And may He grant us the wisdom to see how not only the, the big story fits together, but to take that next step and see how we fit into His great story of redemption. Let's pray together as we finish out our time. Father, this is one of the, if not the most difficult texts in the Bible for us to, to understand, uh, maybe even if we're honest, to, to agree with. Father, we just humbly acknowledge that. We know that the vision that we have, the insight that we have is so limited. We cannot see the dominoes that would fall later on from decisions that are made here or there. But we trust in you, the one who holds life and death in your hands. We can see that you are a good God who longs for all people to find redemption in Jesus Christ. And Father, we are humbled and honored that you have called us to be ambassadors of Christ, sharing this, what Paul calls in Romans 5, uh, sharing this ministry of reconciliation with the world around us. Help us to do that. The world and culture in which we live today needs a whole lot of reconciling. And I pray that we will be those peacemakers, those ambassadors of Christ, that salt and light that you have launched into the world to share your great love with all people. We pray this tonight in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's be standing. Let's worship together.